So the real thing is how do you get maximum value add with patients in the right amount of time? And so there is a way to provide timely quality interaction by getting at what the patient truly wants and patient truly needs. Hey, this is Justin Harvey, your host of the Anesthesia Success Podcast. My wife is an anesthesia resident, and I'm a financial planner, and I work with anesthesia and pain doctors as my clients. This podcast is designed to help the anesthesia community be informed about their careers, their finances, and more by taking important questions straight to the experts. Thanks for tuning in. This week's interview is with Dr. Jake Ryder. Jay and I talk about everything from practice management to contract negotiations to how to think about joining a small practice versus a larger one and important considerations there. If you've ever thought about any of these things, definitely stay tuned. Lots of great intel in this episode. Welcome to this episode of the Anesthesia Success Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Harvey. Our guest for this episode is Dr. Jay Ryder. Jay is the Associate Chief Medical Officer for UK Healthcare Ambulatory Services and is the Medical Director for UK Healthcare Pain Services. He's active in ASRA, NANS, and ASIP. Jay has lectured nationally and internationally on topics related to neuromodulation, interventional techniques, and opioid pharmacology. I had the pleasure of meeting Jay at the ASRA meeting in San Antonio just a couple weeks ago and really benefited from his perspectives on practice management and contract negotiations for physicians, specifically contracts for early career pain doctors. Jay is here today to share a bit more about important contract considerations for physicians in this space. Jay, thanks for joining us. It's good to be here. Uh, and just so our listeners can get a bit of background on your experience, why don't you share with us a little bit about your career, which includes a PhD as well as an MBA, and I'd love to hear how those experiences have shaped your trajectory as a physician and a leader. Sure. With regards to the topic at hand, my real experience became whenever I took over the the training of our fellows at the University of Kentucky, and we were going through a transition ourselves where we were moving away from an academic business model to one that was a little bit more financially viable, and I'll just kind of leave it at that. Um, well, and well, to be frank, because a lot of academic pain programs are not financially viable, and that's that's a little shocking to me to, to not be financially viable running a pain program. It's like, a little like not being able to be financially viable running a money printing press, but that's beside the point. So as we became more business savvy, I began to realize that my fellows were going out and uh, and across the country, fellows were going out, and they were transitioning from one practice style into something else. And a lot of times, it was like listening to a plant describe the motives of a mammal whenever they would go out into into a different environment. And it was like, what are these people talking about? And on the receiving end, I heard that a lot of our private practitioners would say, you know, I get a fellow from an academic program, and I just just figure that it's going to take me two years to get them up to speed on just how to function in the real world. And so I thought, is there a way to bridge that gap a little better from a training standpoint and from a business standpoint? And since we were changing the way we functioned anyway, fellows started gravitating to us because we were able to offer them uh, as close to a real-world experience as they could could get. Now, other ac- other academic brain programs are, are doing similar things. We're not the only ones, but we're pretty intentional in talking about why we're doing what we're doing. So, Okay. And can you elaborate a little bit about how your pain program has evolved and maybe is different from a traditional academic pain program? You know, as, as with all things, my basic philosophy is, is if you begin with the end in mind, you then construct something very intentionally. And if the ending that you want 
our patients to have great access and patients to have a great experience in as much throughput as possible. And what the doc wants is to be busy and functionally active and to to provide as much service as they can without getting ahead of themselves from a from a busyness standpoint or standing around doing nothing and they want to create a good income. Once you get all of these things aligned, sometimes you get situations set up where these are at at 90 degree angles and they're working at cross purposes. But whenever you get all of these things aligned, then your business model and your clinical model function seamlessly because they're all trying to accomplish the same goal. And when you add in the academic piece, when the academic model supports the business model and the clinical model, then everything is moving in a direction that is ideal. And so you hear a lot of things in in the current environment where physicians talk about their needs, and sometimes they're at odds with the needs of the patient. And sometimes patients talk about, I feel like I was just in the mill. I was being cattle carred through a system, and, and that's at odds with their needs and their desires. So how do you balance all of that to get the best outcome? And that's what that's what we tried to do. So the clinical was backing up the, the, the business model. And if those two things are divorced, you've got a problem right at the beginning. Sure, yeah. And it seems like the pain subspecialty specifically, there's more of a tendency to to maybe be have a jarring transition because so much of it is on the private practice side as an attending. That's perhaps a uh, fellows coming through that track are maybe uniquely challenged to be able to negotiate that transition, would you say? Well, and here's the reason why, because most fellows come from an anesthesia background. So for years, you've been taught, you've been told where to go, what room to go to, what to do, and anesthesia practice sort of functions that way. There's somebody centrally sort of coordinating the workforce and go do this, go do that. We need you in this room. We need you in that room. And so many people go into pain because they would like to have a more independent view of their life than that. So when they go into pain, it's hard to get out of that mindset. And then they enter a practice one year later that is probably one of the most entrepreneurial fields out there. And so it's it's a culture shock. And uh, so that's the real transition is going from almost a mindless being told where to go into a one-year transition in an academic place into usually a well-oiled entrepreneurial machine. Yeah. What types of things do you guys do with your program to be able to help fellows make that transition uh, in this essentially like a one-year, not only you know clinical training, but also probably business and economics and understanding the behind-the-scenes math of how a pain practice works? Yeah. So we have a, a pretty intentional process where, again, training isn't done in a haphazard fashion. And that's not to suggest it's done in a haphazard fashion anywhere else. Training is done well, I mean, from a clinical monitoring standpoint. What I'm talking about is a professional growth track. And in that professional growth track, what we want to emphasize is at the very beginning, it's a I do, you watch. And that stage lasts very, 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 very short period of time. And we immediately transition pretty quickly into a, I do you help. Then we try to transition as quickly as possible from an I do you help into a you do I help. Then as quickly as we can, we want people to get to an independent place where it's an I, you do, I'm assisting or watching. And that grows professional competence very quickly. So for instance, if you know that you're going to be going out and having to see between 20 and 30 patients in a day minimum in order to meet your overhead needs and your income needs, then 
working at a clip of 8 to 12 is not what you need to do. It's not training you for what you're going to need to do. You're going to have to get up to speed, and you're going to be doing it in an environment where you're actually not only having to get up to speed, but you're having to perform. And so no one would ever put a concert pianist on stage and say, here's the music I want you to play, play it. That, that would just never happen. No quarterback would ever go on a field and the coach say, here's a whole series of plays that we've designed. Let's, let's see how this goes. That just wouldn't happen. So I want, them to, I want them to have at least practiced what they will be doing in a real world at some point. So we grow gradually. Our goal isn't for them to be a production machine on day one. But by day 240, we need to be thinking, how are we going to be transitioning you into what's a real world setting? So at first, we want, the, we want the academic give and take. And we're working around you to keep that going. But eventually, we would like for you to be driving the machine. You're turning the flywheel so that you know what it's like to see 25, 30 patients and be responsible for that with us in the background, ensuring that the care plans and transitions and all those things are, 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 are appropriate. Now, by no means are we saying you're on your own and, and we are divorced from the care. It's you are driving the machine. You're in the room with the patient you're seeing what it's like to, to have to be in two places at once and manage some of those issues, you know. So that's yeah. kind of the thought. Okay. So for a physician in this place who's about to transition, maybe take somebody who's, who hasn't come through your program but is still looking to, you know, try to understand what type of mindset adjustment or, you know, even understanding professionally how the operation from the academic to private practice side is going to evolve. If you had to give it like a three or five minute dump on somebody in this position. What are the important things to think about or consider that maybe they haven't been exposed to before? Sure. So the real thing is how do you get maximum value add with patients in the right amount of time? And so anybody who's talked about any sort of critical relationship, there are basically two things that you have to offer. You can either offer quantity or you can offer quality. And so quantity is the easiest thing to provide somebody. Somebody will soak up 45 minutes or somebody will soak up 25 minutes and so you give them 25 minutes. But oftentimes you're doing that, but the patient still leaves and gives you a slam on the patient satisfaction score because you're not directing the care. There is a way to provide timely quality interaction by getting at what the patient truly wants and patient truly needs. And so the quicker you can ascertain that, the better you are at getting to quality rather than quantity. And so that's the real frustration is in the academic programs, sometimes the difficult patients or the hard complex patients, they get treated with quantity of time. And you're thinking to yourself as a, as a fellow, I'll never be able to spend this much time. So you're not even practicing the skill that you need. How do you give the patient high-value, high-quality time? And sometimes that causes you to have to rethink your clinical model because sometimes what they need is, is care, but not always intensively from the physician. But there's a way to provide care within your clinical paradigm that doesn't necessarily have to be provided by the clinician itself. And that's setting up care pathways with nurses, with even with your staff that rooms patients. To The, the visit really begins 
from the moment they walk up to the window, how do you get the maximum value and make them feel like they've been heard and their needs have been addressed? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm glad you brought that up, the the care model consideration. And for somebody who's transitioning to a a new entity for employment, you know, looking at different care models that may exist, whether it's a physician-only practice or a team-based model, can you maybe compare and contrast those and and give some things to think about for somebody who's perhaps looking at a job offer with a physician-only versus a, a care team? Well, so care team models don't usually exist. That's the first thing. So this this idea of of interdisciplinary pain programs, it is a bit of a of a misnomer. You know, in reality, if we were treating pain effectively, you know, it would be done with you know large amounts of of social work and rehab for the true chronic pain issues. So the real issue is you have three real separate groups of, of patients mixed into your population. You have People with musculoskeletal issues that when you solve them or whenever you address them, they go away. And, and so somebody comes in and, and they, their shoulder hurts, their neck hurts, their back hurts. You do something for them and they go away for a period of three to five months and they, they don't really need anything from you. And, and, and what they want is quick in and out access. So you have to understand that person. Then you have the person with a, with a next level up complexity who they maybe have a ridiculous pain in their leg after surgery or, or their arm or something along those lines, and you're able to do something for them, they also have a more complex need, but they also don't want to interact with, with your health system as much. And then you have about a third of the patients, the, the final third, that basically need intensive resources. And so we have one clinical model that we address all three with, and so the first group gets frustrated because they don't have the in and out access enough. And the final group gets frustrated because they need something more than a 15-minute interview with a physician or an, or an injection. And so, and that's where things fall down. Most practices, those are very resource-intense sorts of things, and that's where we fall down in the pain community. If you can solve the first two well and be able to recognize that, that chronic population that needs something else, that's the first step is in, in recognizing that population and starting to at least think about how you're going to manage it. Because most people don't manage it. They just dread seeing that person show up on their schedule because they don't have anything really. They, they know it's going to be a hard, long conversation that somebody's going to leave frustrated every time, but they don't have anything to offer them. When practices manage those types of patients effectively, what do they do? So on some level, those people really ultimately want a connection. And so little small touches that let them know that you care. Deep down, they know that you're not going to solve their issue. They just want to know that you can at least empathize with them. And so a model that's really efficient at getting people in and out quickly isn't necessarily a a high-touch, high-care model. And so you have to be able to to, to be able to deliver two different things at the same time. And, uh, and empathy can be delivered quickly. That, that's really the thing is most, most of the patients in the third category don't have a treatment option that's going to dramatically change their situation. But, you know, the old television show Cheers, sort of the idea, you know, you just want to kind of go where everybody knows your name. And, yeah. and that's, <laughs> uh, you know, that, that can sometimes have value. So Sure. Cool. I want to pivot a little bit and talk about transitions in employment that are going to impact, you know, somebody's career and economic situation for years to come and helping doctors discern the differences between different types of employers. So if we 
just to kind of build a couple straw men here to consider, if we're looking at a smaller one or two or three physician pain practice versus maybe a larger pain practice either attached to a hospital or or a bigger private practice, can you maybe compare and contrast some environmental factors like you know what what is the clinical practice going to look like in these settings and economically kind of how compensation might be structured in each of those? Sure. So starting with the most basic element, the, the, the single proprietor who has gone out on his or her own and they've started their own practice and they, they took all the financial risk and they're working out of their office and their practice is growing and they would like to add somebody. So the most important thing for a fellow or even a somebody who's been working in a hospital setting to understand is that that person has all the chips in. You know, you, you talk about skin in the game. Nobody has more skin in the game than that person. And so there is a there is a nervousness about adding someone to that that situation. And and the person has to understand that this is the ultimate small business. So whenever you join that, until you are productive, that person is essentially taking food off of their own table to have you there. And so the offers are not as lucrative. There is a sense that you pick up that you're that things are being held back. That you're not getting the whole story and that's because there is a there's a nervousness to that. And the people don't intend for it to be that way, but they actually create relationships that cannot sustain long term because all the power rests in one place and and none of the power rests in the other. And it's an inequity that can just never be bypassed. And so it takes a really skillful person to be able to create something and then create a business climate where they can grow it and enhance it. And those are skills that just frankly aren't taught in medical school. So the first question to ask is really, you know, how many people have you brought in? And you'll often hear in the warning sign places, well, I had a guy a couple years ago and that one didn't work out, you know, and, and that, you know, those are the situations that are, that are difficult. My general rule of thumb is if it's a single person, you have to make sure that that person really has genuine motives in bringing that, bringing on a partner. If there's two, I jokingly say that can still be a danger zone because that can be two two golfing buddies from the anesthesia group who decided they were going to go out and start their own practice and they've been together for a long time and they've worked it out but when they add you in that's a different animal so it's really those two are really one person once a group gets to three they have usually figured out the dynamics of how to interact with each other without killing each other and it goes pretty well so i was just looking at a at a contract with one of my fellows last night at a place where they have seven physicians on board. And you can tell by the way the offer is written, even though there's some ways to hide traps and quicksand, they have a a pretty well-oiled way of bringing on somebody and a pretty clear-cut way of, of managing the finances. And with seven people, you have to assume that seven people aren't gonna let you screw them and just sit there and take it. So that there has to be there has to be some physician equity that is of value. Then you have to figure out if you're okay with the culture. So if you find one of these one physician or two physician practices and you really jive with you know the personality and the ethos of the practice and and you are inclined to move forward with it, you know, is there anything that uh, a fellow in that position can do to make sure that you know they they get a fair deal? Because obviously you're not saying categorically exclude the smaller practices. No, 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 no. Uh, of course not. The biggest reason is physicians don't think in a strategic business sense 
on why they are expanding their operation. Because for the most part, if, if I own a practice and I'm as busy as I can be and I've maximized my income, what really is there in it for me to grow other than there's demand there, but you're really growing something for another person and you don't get a lot out of it with the exception of you can begin to spread overhead around. And that that has value, but many a person has looked around and said, I'd rather just eat the overhead than deal with that guy. And that's where the problem comes in is they don't know why they're expanding. So if if you're seeing 40 people a day and you are as busy as you can be and you're making all the income you can make and you are your widgets are coming down the line as fast as you can manage them. Adding somebody doesn't change your process. It does increase your complexity. So the first step is asking really intuitive questions. Why are you wanting to expand and hearing what they say about that? If there's a poorly thought out of, well, you know, there's just a whole lot of demand out there. I mean, I've seen practices where I'm booked out eight weeks, and so I need to bring somebody in. They brought somebody in, and that eight-week backlog went away, but there really wasn't enough work there for two people to do. He just had a backlog, or she just had a backlog, and they didn't perceive the real need. And then you have a situation that's the worst possible thing, where two people are competing over scarce resources. I call that Thunderdome. That's that's uh, the old movie from uh, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome where the line was, two men in or one man leave. And uh, yeah. you know who that's going to be if you're the second person in. So Yeah, and you mentioned this other dynamic that I want to bring up. Uh, you know, in one of these smaller practices when two physicians, two fellows perhaps, are, are hired at the same time, and you mentioned that's a danger. Can you expand on that a little bit? Sure. Two people who come in straight out of a fellowship have very different practice styles. And so, for instance, I, I've seen seen it happen all the time. And like a large orthopedics or multi-specialty group will say, we have enough volume for two people. We want to start off. What that usually means is we interviewed two and we couldn't figure out which one we wanted. So we thought we'd bring both in because by golly, we're big and, and we can absorb that. But they bring two people in. One was trained at, at program X where every patient gets deep sedation for their procedures and they're done in an ASC, which turns over slowly. And the other was done in an office setting you know, where they they don't get any sedation and, and they do 12 procedures in a day and they're doing other things at the same time and both arrive simultaneously. And as you always do, whenever physicians start bellyaching about something, the organization will try to accommodate both rather than setting up standard work. And so you have one person who's all their patients are getting sedation, and so they're holding up the PACU space for 45 minutes. And then you give four milligrams of Versed to the 72-year-old, and she's asleep over there in the corner until noon, and you can't turn that bed over. And the other guy who doesn't give any sedation is going, dude, what are you doing? You are absolutely killing my throughput and my productivity. So a lot of times these differences in variation in practice style, until you determine how the practice is going to work and somebody is added into that standard workflow, it's difficult to create two standard workflows simultaneously without somebody understanding that you have two competing workflows. In business, you would you would never allow two different ways of doing the same job to be done in parallel. <laughs> you, you just wouldn't. But in medicine, we do it all the time. So 
Makes sense. And so on the, I think you give us a good snapshot, sort of what the smaller practice considerations are. If we, what if we look at a bigger pain group? How how do those dynamics change a little bit as far as prospective employment? So whenever you enter into a, a larger pain group, you are entering a culture, you are entering a a way of doing things, and you're entering a a business and a clinical philosophy. And you have to understand that there is room for some variation, but not a lot. For instance, if the business model is built on we don't say no to opiate management and you strongly are of the of the belief that opiates should be eliminated for most patients and minimized uh, in the majority, you've got a philosophical issue right there. You enter into a program where you intend to do interthecal therapy and the practice doesn't want to do that because, on essence, you're, you're covering each other's liability. But you know that interthecal therapy is, is a valuable treatment option. So right there, there's, a, there's an issue. There are even groups that, that don't want to manage spinal cord stimulation. So if you want to be an implanter, but you've got two other physicians there who don't implant, uh, they don't want to cover your, your issues or your, your problems whenever you're out of town. So even really subtle things are really a big deal. They will be surprised as they go out, even just the way that you do procedures. You think that sterile technique, everyone agrees sterile technique is important. Sometimes sterile technique is I roll my shirt sleeves up whenever I do the procedure to I put on a, a gown and gloves whenever I do X, Y, and Z. So something as simple as, oh, yes, we strictly adhere to sterile technique can be open to wide, wider degrees of, of interpretation than the fellow would ever anticipate. Are there any ways that you'd recommend a fellow being able to you know, determine these clinical philosophy differences potentially at, you know, during the vetting process? Because that sounds like some things that you might not be able to determine until you've been you know, uh, practicing somewhere for a little while. Yeah. You know, the way I describe getting your first job out of fellowship is is if you were told, go find someone to marry on July 1 and, you know, just that's your goal, you would go out and you would look for someone and you'd make the best decision you could knowing that there was a time crunch. But that's not the way we ever do things. Uh, you know, take pressure off of yourself with your first job. Don't necessarily think of your first job you know, till death do you part. It, it's, you know, it's till you have your Popeye moment, you know, in every Popeye cartoon, there's this, there's this moment where Popeye says, you know, I've had all I can stand and I can't stand no more. So whenever you, whenever you're ready to have your Popeye moment, that's whenever you know it's time to move on. But I would anticipate that the likelihood is that that will occur. So you don't go into a negative, you just go into it with less pressure on yourself that that first choice has to be the optimal choice. Yeah, it makes sense. And I think there's probably just also an objective, uh, you know, observation on one's own part that the informational asymmetry between prospective employee and employer or prospective partner and, you know, the practice partners is at its greatest uh, at the beginning of your career. And you're more likely to probably make a decision that 10 years down the line, you can, you know, in hindsight, see may, might not have been optimal. Yeah, so I, problem, I think that makes a lot of sense. But the issue is, just real quickly, is you also don't want to hem yourself in and and burn everything down. So if you've got to live in a geographic area and you go in and, and you've entered a practice that has a 25-mile you know, uh, restrictive covenant, then you, you've got to think long and hard about that. You know, like, let's say, for instance, because of a, a family situation or X, Y, or Z, you've got to live in a geographic area. You can get yourself into into real binds where you're stuck in a place 
longer than you mean to. And, and another way that people get themselves into real binds is just with their own stupidity and their personal spending habits. So let's say you roll into, into a medium-sized city and you buy a gigantic house and you can't move it. And, and so you're stuck there because you, you can't get away from this albatross that you've surrounded yourself with. I would, I would be very wise with your first move out. I would enter that with caution. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's that period of time, you know, in the early practice years when if you can resist for a little bit, obviously doctors are have delayed gratification for a long time, med school and training and all that. But if you can do it for a little bit longer, you can really lay a solid financial foundation for yourself and yeah. your family. Yeah, I've actually got a whole lecture that I give on, on that. It's it's a different topic in and of itself, how to how to set yourself up in the first the the first 15 months after practice. So. Oh, great. Well, I'd, I'd love to hear that at some point, perhaps in the future. So as we uh, continue here, I, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, compensation, because, you know, when you're a fellow, you've every year through training, you just get a number. It's a flat salary number <laughs> between 50 and 70K, probably, or maybe a little more. And you've never had to think about the different components of your compensation. You've never had to do a math problem to figure out how much money you're going to make. You just make the money that you're promised. And then, obviously, when you when you take this role as an attending, all of a sudden you're doing math. You're trying to understand the different scenarios in which how much you're going to get paid. And there can be a six-figure implication to that math problem that you want to make sure you're doing the math right. So in that context, can we talk a little bit about uh, you know, WRVUs and understanding how are contracts structured when there's a math component, if we're looking at uh, a base plus an RVU target or if there's net collections involved? What are the important things to be aware of uh, with regards to compensation that, that you have never had to deal with before as a physician? Sure. So first of all, a work RVU, all, pay, all physicians are paid on a work RVU basis, whether you are in private practice or not, and not everyone appreciates that. And the reason why is because Centers for Medicare Services, CMS, looks at work complexity based on an RVU system. So it's a, it's a unitless number that is applied to clinical work to, to give you a ratio of how complex it is. For example... If you're doing a 15-minute office visit, that is a work RVU number of, of basically one. If you're doing a skull-based surgery in neurosurgery that takes 12 hours, that might be 65 work relative value units, meaning that they consider that skull-based surgery to be 65 times more complex than that 15-minute office visit talking about blood pressure. So it's a way of determining the complexity of clinical work. And everything is based off of that. Even your cash payments in private practice is based off of a work RVU value. It's just hospital systems use that as a way to track physician productivity because it, it, it's a pretty reasonable measure. But the payment systems of all the insurance companies, the rate scales, are, are created on work RVU basis. So if you're working in a hospital-based setting, they will create a work RVU platform whereby this is a base amount of work RVUs for, for interventional pain programs uh, using MGMA numbers from the last couple of years. That'll, that'll be somewhere between 5,000 and 6,000. Typically, I see it around 5,300 as a base salary or as a base work RVU unit for a base amount of money. Usually, they tie the 50th percentile in work RVUs to the 50th percentile in pay which is a range between 350 and 420. So between 350 and 420 for a work RBU range between 5,000 and 6,000. So what that means is whenever you see patients, 
Whenever I see a follow-up patient, that will generate about 1.5 work RBUs. Whenever I do an epidural, that, that generates about 1.5 work RBUs. You add those numbers up through your day and throughout your week and throughout your year, and whenever that number equals 5,500, you have met the baseline expectation for your salary, which was $375,000 from this institution. Now, the incentive usually comes in on that 5,501st work RBU, they will pay you a dollar amount for that RBU over and above. That is typically between 45 and $75, with the median being about 64. So for that next work RBU, 5,501, you got $64. That added into your ledger. That's a way of accounting for your work over and above the baseline expectation for your salary. And they will usually pay that out as a flat rate all the way up. Some institutions above a certain amount, say 12500 will start to cap it or will start to pay less and less so that they can prevent you from driving volume through in a way that limits quality. That's pretty short-sighted. It suggests that you're too stupid to know how to manage both and they have to do it for you. Because there are some people that, that just would, would continue to, to cattle car people through in a way. But if, you're, if your clinical model and your business model are set up with the end result in mind, which is great patient care and patient satisfaction that is provided efficiently and, and expediently in the best manner possible, you'll think those things through. But that's the way the salary system works in most hospital-based settings or RBU-based settings is base salary is one component at a percentile tied to a work unit percentile then for every dollar or for every unit produced above that baseline, they pay a set dollar amount. So those are the three negotiating pieces are the base salary tied to the work RBU number tied to a unit number for each piece above that. So when you're negotiating, like for instance, if you come in wanting a high base salary, that makes people nervous because Many a person has come in asking for a high base salary and never produced up to that amount, and that's just cost added. So a, a way to get someone's attention that you have good intentions is to say, I'm willing to take a lower base salary that has a lower baseline RBU target, and then everything above that is upside. That way, if I don't hit it, you're, you're not out. So, you know, but that, that creates upside incentive for people. So that's one way of, of doing that negotiation. Yeah, that'll make sense, Jay. Um, and as we're winding things down here, I want to touch finally on what does it look like to be a sole practitioner? And specifically, if I'm a, an early career pain doc and I'm looking to start a practice on my own, potentially from scratch or essentially from scratch, I want to examine some of the things to look out for. I met uh, a gentleman at Azra, Dr. Matt Kaplan. I don't know if you know Matt. He's based out of Austin. He was telling me a story about him as a, an early career attending wanting to start his own thing. And this is something where I think I really personally resonate with a lot of people in the pain community because it's very entrepreneurial as a specialty. And so he moved to Austin, didn't live there from out of town, started from scratch, pounded the pavement to build the network, the referral base with other physicians, got set up with space and had to clear a number of business and regulatory as well as clinical hurdles in order to make that work and make something happen from nothing. So in the context of a physician coming to you and saying, hey, I think I can do this. Maybe they're a fellow or maybe they've, they're three or four years out of, uh, you know, into practicing as an attending. What kind of advice would you give someone like that to try to 
enlighten them to what they might be up against? So here's the thing I would say, and I, and I just had a discussion this morning with a fellow about this, is with regards to starting your own thing, I've known lots of really experienced physicians who thought that they understood the business of medicine and, and, and more specifically the business of pain management, but didn't know what they didn't know. And because of that, they moved from rather lucrative salaries into a place where I've known people who, because of not getting on insurance panels in a timely fashion or not knowing how to pre-cert or file claims as accurately as they thought they did, they thought they understood the process, but they didn't really understand the nuts and bolts of it. And it's on them for the first time. One of my friends didn't drop his first bill for almost 13 months. Wow. He hired a practice manager who he thought, who told him, oh, I've done this before, I know what to do, and, and didn't, had a second problem and ended up hiring a billing company and some of the AR that it was sitting there was was not retrievable at all, oh, and so what a disaster. Then that's a worst case scenario. And this person went from a almost a seven figure income to basically living off of savings, you know, while they were going to the school of hard knocks, and also once got out on their own, realized, you know what, that income that the hospital was was making, I can't recover. It was only through the partnership that I had with the hospital that we did that well. There's no way for me to to do as well financially as I could with a hospital system that was swimming in the same direction I am. The fellow that I was speaking with this morning is, is joining a large multi-specialty pain group. They have seven or eight physicians, and so they've figured out how to interact with each other in a, in a reasonable way. And, and so his first negotiation was base salary, should it be higher or should I go with upside? He wanted to have a higher guarantee because he wasn't sure they were dealing with percentages of cash collections. What I cautioned him was, was what I'll, I'll say to, to anybody you know listening to the podcast. At some point, unless you're running your own practice, you will wake up and you thought you were in private practice, but you are really no more than an employed physician. So the person who is truly out on their own is rare. You are in an employed situation almost virtually every every time. Walmart hires an employee so that they can make profit. So any company is is hiring you to make profit. They are not making they're not an altruistic setup. They're not hiring you for your own personal benefit. If you benefit, that is okay, but they are hiring you to make a profit for the corporation. And whenever it's a, a small corporation with a single proprietor, whenever it's Dr. Jones LLC that you're working for, the person who will be making the profit is that physician or that small group of physicians. So when they pull in with a Maserati next to you, you are funding that. And at some point in the first three to five years, you wake up and realize that. So no matter where you go, you are creating margin for somebody for something. And so you have to figure out whether you're okay with that. Because the first thing that happens is whenever people realize, heck, I've been funding your lifestyle, they get mad. And I want them to understand there's no reason to get mad. You had some unrealistic vision of what you were doing to begin with. You thought somebody was running a nonprofit for you to benefit. So a nonprofit is having you work there so that they can generate extra margin to reinvest into their operations to continue to provide services 
that meet the mission of the nonprofit, whether that's a hospital or a large multi-specialty group. If it's a small private group that you've joined, the nonprofit or the group that you are benefiting is the small group of owners. So whenever they say you get 30% of collections in year three, what they mean is we're going to pay our overhead, our 45 to 50% overhead, then the gap or the delta between your 50% overhead and your 30% collections goes to us. You are paying us for the privilege of us dealing with the headaches. And so when you find that out, don't get angry. You haven't been screwed. Whether you're working for a hospital or you're working for a small private group, you are creating margin. They did not hire you for, for your own benevolent existence. And so that's whenever people get in a huff and they, they start arguing over that 20% and they leave in a huff to go out and do it on their own. But what they realize is it's not as easy. That guy or that gal took years of learning, of failing, of figuring out 55 ways not to do it to figure out how to do it. And so you are paying them a premium for that experience. And that's the thing that I would say to anybody who is looking for employment. You think you've gone out into private practice to work with a, with a multi-specialty group, and you have not done something that is in your own best interest. You are still funding the, the best interest of another. It's just you have to, to be okay with your take in that. No one, no one who works at Walmart gets mad because Walmart is a multi-billion dollar corporation. The, the agreement you have signed is, I will do what you've asked me to do for this amount of money, and I'll show up and do it to the best of my ability. And Walmart worries about everything else. So the doc really has to understand that even when they're in private practice, they are no more than an employee unless they go out and they start a small business, which is a lonely, hard thing to do, and virtually no one is doing that. They all see the large group, and they dream of being the guy who owns clinics in – 10 cities with 70 locations. And let me tell you, that all started with one person working pretty hard. What ends up happening is you'll find that most of the guys who are running those large practices, interestingly, are still practicing four or five days a week, sometimes three days a week. So they haven't generated enough income through that growth process to truly hit escape velocity. Like if you owned... 10 McDonald's and you are, your job is to manage those businesses. You're not running the day-to-day -day operations of that business. You have passive income even when you're gone. Most of those people are still pretty heavily clinically active in order to make the incomes that they want to make because there is margin in some of these things, but it takes a whole lot of that margin to keep things growing and, and expanding. That's the piece of that I would say to the to the fellows as they go out is, that's where things go south. In year three to five, where whenever you wake up and you go, I'm getting screwed. You're not getting screwed. It's just, it, unless it's yours, you are creating margin for someone else to distribute as they see fit. That's all that's happened. So at that point, you've got to basically really count the cost and say, am I willing to take on all this business headache and hire a consultant and literally build a business and maintain clinical acumen at the same time, or come to terms with, the economics of the model and continue to live a life with less headache than if you were signing the checks is what you're saying. Exactly. And, and so that's why you see a lot of really marginal little pain practices out there because they're a mom and pop shop and, and, and it is yours, but you know, but you never do as well as you did when you were professionally managed. 
If somebody knows how to create a professionally managed situation like the fellow I was speaking to today, this guy seems pretty sharp that he's working with, and, and it's a professionally managed business organization. That's different than most medical deals that you end up dealing with. So anyway. So in conclusion, Jay, with regards to anesthesia and pain, it's obviously a very demanding profession, and it requires a lot of sacrifice through training and lots of long hours. You know, over the whole course of your career, I'm sure there's you can just stack up story after story of the times you were staying late in order to really use your vocation to serve others. So in closing, I'd love to hear a brief story reflecting on one of your proudest moments as a physician that made you glad that you do what you do. So there are plenty of patient stories, but with regards to the topic at hand today, there was a, a year that I had three fellows and they were all from very different backgrounds. And in the year that, that we were together learning about business management and, and those sorts of things, they developed a very close bond. I was able to help one of them establish a very, very lucrative and very, very active hospital-based practice. And over the following two to three years, the other two migrated from sometimes great distance to work with that first person where three fellows who were in training together went different directions and ended up working together in a seamless group, just tickled to death to be with each other. You know, that, that is a proud moment to me whenever, whenever you create an environment where people like the way they practice, they like the people they're doing it with, and they like the, the spirit and the engagement, and they choose to continue to take that culture, make it their own, and expand it. There's lots of successful practices that we've helped set up for people, but that's one where multiple people were able to benefit from common processes. Yeah. And I think it's a great testament to the way that you instill common vision in your trainees and, and the people who go through there. They've got the same ethos and and they, that draws them to one another even, even later as they continue practicing. I think that's a great, great story. So Dr. Jay Greider, really appreciate you joining us on the Anesthesia Success Podcast. Thank you very much for your time today. No problem. Thank you, Justin. Hey, Justin here. This may shock you to learn, but I am actually not a full-time podcaster. I also run a financial planning company called Quantify Planning, where I work closely with anesthesia and pain docs to build and implement customized financial plans. If you're interested in working with a financial planner who knows many of the ins and outs of your profession, shoot me an email or head on over to quantifyplanning.com for more information. If you're a resident or fellow, I can also offer you a free student loan analysis if you're interested, but there might be a waiting list, so check out the link over there to see. If you're interested in learning more about the topics we discussed today, head over to anesthesiasuccess.com to join our community of residents and attendings and others to ask a question or get more free resources. If and only if you like this episode, please leave us a review and subscribe. Thank you very much for listening to the Anesthesia Success Podcast.